welcome back to Story Conversations. I'm Simon Arrowsmith and with me as always is... Susan Griffin. Hi, Susan. How are you doing? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm excited for today's conversation, of course. Yeah, as am I. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about who we have on today's show? So, our guest today is Angel Ballone. Uh, Angel is a cultural anthropologist and he works at, at Paramount um, and he develops, he, he develops what he refers to, uh, what they refer to as cultural intelligence. Um, and I think we should just start the conversation and let him explain it all. Yeah, sounds good. Here we go. Angel, thank you so much for being with us. Um, we love to start our conversations by hearing a little of our guests' origin story. So at the moment, you're Senior Director of Insights and Cultural Intelligence at Paramount. Uh, various bios describe you as a hybrid strategist and cultural anthropologist, an innovation whisperer. I love that one. Um, and prior to Paramount, you'd worked for media companies, branding companies, trend forecasting agencies, including Faith Popcorn's Brain Reserve. And in your current work, you've been credited with uncovering startling cultural truths in the narrative of what shapes the Latinx and LGBTQ plus communities and what that means for brands. Where did your love of story start? Where did it come from? Yeah, I think it really started as a kid. Um, I was a really big reader. Growing up gay, you really feel isolated from everyone mm. else. So I really immersed myself, immersed myself in books. And I'm going to date myself because I don't think this happens anymore. But you too might remember there was always those reading competitions. And the more books you read, you would get, you know, a free pizza or, you know, <laughs> discounts or stuff like that. And it always made sure I won um, because I'm also type A and very competitive. And you, I would just read and read and read. And I would spend all my time reading books. And I just love how you can create entire worlds with just like words on a page and now, now a screen. So... Now, I really apply that to what I do when I study culture. It's about giving people a glimpse into identities, communities, cultures, so that they can better connect with consumers, audience, and even people. Because I oftentimes, when I'm doing um, work around multicultural or marginalized communities, my work is focused on them as humans and people, mm -hmm. not audiences or consumers, because I want to build a culture of empathy. And you can't target a community of color or a marginalized community without understanding who they are as people first. Yeah. That's and amazing. It is. And it's, it's interesting you say, you know, that you can't target a group like that. It's because that group is made up of lots of different parts. It's just, there's this need, isn't there, to, to sort of create a single set and that's the answer. Yeah. And I mean, people, brands do all the time. Right. But that's why you have these inauthentic, very stereotypical representations, these narratives that continue to be perpetuated. Mm. Right. That are not debunking the myths or showing the multidimensionality of these communities or how they are diverse, mm. um, oftentimes even more so than the general population. Yeah, absolutely. So where did you grow up? You grew up in uh, in Connecticut, right? Yeah, I grew up in Connecticut. I was born in Hawaii, lived in Hawaii till I was about six. Then we moved to Connecticut. I remember seeing snow for the first time. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and then I studied 
this is like going back. Um, I stayed in Connecticut and I went to Yukon stores uh, to study pharmacy um, because my parents, you know, are immigrants and really pushed me into, you're really good in math and science, you need to become a doctor. We have a lot of um, other family members that are doctors, but I couldn't really deal with blood and guts and stuff like that. <laughs> I had one aunt that was a pharmacist and my path was made for me. Um, but after three years of that and working in a hospital, I realized this wasn't the job for me or the career for me. So I left for New York and um, did my undergrad at FIT, studying fashion, worked in fashion, doing fashion forecasting. I love the research part of it and predicting and forecasting where things were going, but it wasn't substantial enough for me. Um, I didn't want to, you know, predict a new color or predict a new pattern because it was very repetitive. It's always florals for spring and, you know, there's always a new color that's always a new black and sometimes black is the new black. Um, what is it, I wanted what is it to, this year? It's magenta, something magenta, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> it's like this self, it's like we're creating this like idea and then it's, it's we're predicting the future in the fashion industry, but it's just saying, okay, all these mass brands create in this color, yeah. create in this pattern, create in this silhouette. It's not really forecasting in its true essence. Um, but I learned about Faith Popcorn at, at FIT, and I thought, wow, this is a really great career. Um, but I didn't think it was a career path until I came across her agency. And then you, you went on to get an MA from the New School in Media Studies. So, you know, I understand the, the through line relative to trends, but what... When when was it that you discovered this kind of superpower of uh, cultural context? You know, did you develop that yourself, or were there academics that you were exposed to? Um, and when when did you latch on to the idea of being an anthropologist? Yeah. So when I trace back on my experience and my education, I was doing it without even realizing it. I remember um, my intro to journalism 101 class and for our final feature article, we could choose any topic. And again, I'm going to date myself and both of you might remember this. <laughs> the first DVRs, the replay TVs that came out like in the early 2000s. Yep. And I remember thinking, oh my God, this is going to be huge for the ad industry. It's going to change everything. So I wanted to really focus on that. And I conducted expert interviews. I didn't know I was conducting expert interviews at the time. I talked to professors at FIT that were focused on advertising, marketing. I spoke to other people. Um, and I would say not one person thought it was a big deal. Mm -hmm. And I really was like, there's no way this is gonna, this is like gonna disrupt and transform the whole industry. So I stuck with it, had a point of view, ended up getting an A, but, and then continued on really uh, like looking at like, culture in a different way it opened my eyes that oh this is really interesting kind of emulating faith popcorn in a way um and just continued on that path uh then i worked with her it was really i would say a master's program but getting paid for it <laughs> because everyone there was super passionate was great culture analysts was amazing at their jobs and really passionate about training and teaching the next generation um, but when I was there, I remember someone saying, and this isn't a criticism of the people there because they're all great, but, and that person didn't last long at Faith Popcorn anyways, <laughs> and said in a meeting, anyone with a master's can do this. And I was the only one. I was the least educated at the time and the youngest. 
And I remember, oh, I was always going to get a master's, but I was like, I need to get a master's right away because if this is like the conversations that are going to be had, then I need to make myself competitive and not just this agency, but in the industry overall. So I decided to go to the new school um, and study media studies, but really focusing on culture analysis and research methods. And I would say that's where I really leaned into the anthropology part of it. And I, and I love the notion that, you know, going back to the whole idea of, you know, trend forecasting and fashion and color, you know, persimmon this year. Uh, who even knows what a persimmon color is? But um, <laughs> I love the idea that you were actually looking at things and saying to yourself, wow, not this is going to be a trend, but rather that, wow, this is going to change everything. You know, this is going to be disruptive. And that feels to me like a real differentiation in terms of your skill set um, and how you applied that to culture. Um, it's interesting that you should say that, Susan. I've just been reading a book by um, uh, Kellerman and Seligman, Martin Seligman, who's a, and and and, and mm-hmm. talking about the, one of the key skills in this world of work we find ourselves in now is about prospecting. So it's kind of about the 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 taking an understanding of where technology and where the world is taking us, and how can we make use of that? How can we? see the opportunity it sounds like that was something that you had down at a very early age yeah I think you know the latter half of my career has really been focusing on education and teaching people how to do what I do and I really try to teach them that anyone can do this yes of course intuition is really important and that you can't teach intuition right Right. but curiosity and passion and you know i always tell people to lean into something that you're passionate about and immerse yourself you're going to do it anyways right and start to see what is what are the what's the white space what are what's the data that exists and analyze that and really predict if you're really into anime where is it going if you're really into golf or gardening where is it going what are what are the influencers in this space what are the, what's the conversation so really applying it to your everyday things that you're passionate about and then once you practice that then you could bring it into your day-to-day um practice mm. yeah in an interview you you, you talked of having your own ritual and you encourage others I guessing through your education to create their own system uh, for looking for culture and, and immersing themselves in it in order to develop um, what you title at Paramount uh, you know, it's kind of the cultural intelligence I guess um, mm-hmm. and we've heard this described by other guests and it's a term that we use on the pod- podcast a lot which is this idea of story listening listening to people's stories, listening to the stories that are out there, paying attention. I, I really believe that, as you said, that curiosity is a, is a big part of that. And can you tell us a little bit about your rituals? I'm fascinated. Yeah, so with every project, um, I like to change it up. Um, so I really create a system of rituals to make sure that it's being the most effective. But I would say like my everyday ritual is, you know, I spend every morning and it's kind of like gearing me up for the day. Um, I read all my newsletters, my sub stacks, my blogs, and I just let it take me wherever it takes me. 
by clicking this and going to here and, oh, I saw this stat, let me research that article where it came from and just really just focus on everything that I'm reading and like immerse myself in like, what are the questions? What are the conversations? Who's talking about this? Who is the author? Are these articles? And I also spend the end of the day kind of winding down so that way I can have that distinction between work and life and doing the same thing. So that's something that I do every day. Um, and again, the passion is there, the curiosity is there. Even if I have a long day, I still do that. It's just something that's innate in what I do. And that's why I say, you know, the passion needs to be there. Um, and if you don't want to do it in your day to day, think of again, what you're interested in to practice that. And it's, it's a muscle that you need to like work out. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. And that's my ritual. And I tell people, listen, this is what works for me. And I tell them, these are all these hacks but it's not to do it exactly how I do it. You need to create your own system that works for them. Yeah. Well, I'm also going to, I'm also going to throw out the idea that, you know, even though your colleague at Faith Popcorn said, anybody with a master's can do this. mm, I don't know. I think (laughs) there needs to be a little bit of magic. There needs to be a little bit of alchemy because being able to see that white space, it's, it's fine to be curious, but I am going to, call you out for being a a, a real a, a real expert an alchemist a magician because you you say you don't say hmm, this is interesting as I said this is going to be a trend you say this is going to change everything which is which is a superpower um I'm just yeah, gonna thank you and yeah I appreciate that and I think the more you do it though you start to see things right it's 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 often you talk about story listening and I think it's really, yes, it's about what is being said or what's being communicated, but it's oftentimes what's not being said and what's not being communicated, right? Because that white space, those holes or the audiences that are not being communicated or even having that visibility oftentimes is going to tell you where the future is. So I think it's a balance of the two. You need to do both. Um, but I love the alchemy magic um, metaphor. I think for for what I do, it's definitely alchemy for sure. It's bringing, infusing different things together to create something new, right? So it's about finding the cultural data that oftentimes could be disconnected or people would find surprising that there is a connection between cultural signals and having a new insight, a new story, a new point of view. So that would be the new thing that we're creating from the fusion of all of this together. And oftentimes people think there is magic, right? And I think there is the magic is what you're talking about, right? The intuition, the curiosity. But I think oftentimes it's been a detriment to the trend forecasting futurism industry because a lot of people think it's just magic, (laughs) right? right? That it's just something just comes to you. I'm going to give you the brand vision just as a psychic looking at a crystal ball. But there's a lot of research that goes into every every futurist foresight project um you know i love quantitative and oftentimes people think that we don't deal with quantitative i love writing surveys surveys to me are writing a survey is a creative writing exercise i love getting that data back but i also want to talk to consumers i also want to see what's happening in the world to bring all of that together right it's magic but it's skill it's skilled it's a real learned and practiced skill. I've got a really <laughs> this is going to date me my cultural references as you were as you were sharing that story I'm picturing or in my and the thing that I'm I'm 
thinking of is have you seen the film Working Girl with Melanie Griffiths? Yes, a long time so ago, yes, yes. There's this whole thing about Melanie Griffiths comes up with this amazing idea to, and it's all about the how she got to it. She looked at the um, page six and she looked at this um, article and that article and it's just all of those seemingly random connections but the fact that she was observing them it's a character it's not really Melanie Griffiths doing it but this character in the story is observing them would allow them to create an opportunity and see an opportunity that someone else would never see so whilst I, com I completely agree it may feel like magic it's actually you know hard work <laughs> and observation right. and being open right. to it right and putting yeah, things absolutely. together I mean, she... putting things together that may not look like they go together yeah yeah sorry yeah, yeah i mean uh melanie griffith's character was doing cultural analysis absolutely there you go. That's, that's that was, <laughs> that's well, my cultural contribution <laughs> <laughs> well I, this is an interesting segue into um the work that you have done at Paramount, which is how I first met you, um, Angel. And, you know, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the work that your teams developed that created the In America series and talk just a little bit about what that, what that entailed. Yeah. So before I go into exactly what the In America series, I want to just explain a little bit more of what I do at Paramount. That's a so good idea. I, yeah. So I'm under Paramount Advertising, so the ad sales division within Paramount Global. And um, as an insights cultural intelligence person, my remit is really to inform our advertising partners and uh, Paramount, the sales team, on culture, how to better connect with audiences. And now, because of the last couple of years, a lot of it has been focused on DNI and marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. As a double minority, that lens has always been in my work. Also, as an anthropologist, that's always in my work. But now it's become a corporate mandate to really have that, not as a differentiator, but as the standard in all of our research, mm -hmm. which I love. Um, so we launched the In America series, which but currently there's four editions, and I'm working on a spinoff. I'm about to kick it off now. Um, we started off with Black in America, then Latinx in America, which I also worked on. Asian in America, and then lastly, LGBTQ plus in America, which I worked on. And what we wanted to do, going back to what I said before, is think about these communities as people, as humans, not as viewers, not as consumers. Get to know them, their lived experiences, their histories, the tensions that they experience, the microaggressions, and how all of that is being expressed in their present day experiences, and how they're navigating a culture that was not created for them or created by them. Mm -hmm. So it's, they're very emotional. These are not your typical multicultural DNI marketing presentations. Again, we're not saying Latinos love food and family, which in every single Latin report, I see that, or LGBTQ plus people love to travel or spend lots of money compared to the average person. I wish. You didn't want to do it. <laughs> yeah. Please. Those are the present. <laughs> Those are the presentations that I normally right. see, and it's just like an eye roll. Um, but we go into the history, and for these, and Susan, you've seen it. Yes. People have cried. People yes. have laughed. I, and that's I've what we cried. want to do. Yeah. Yeah. I've cried writing them. Um, <laughs> but I really, I feel very lucky to work at a company like Paramount that respects the work, gives us the freedom to have those hard conversations, and then also back it up with the proper resources investment. 
because oftentimes at agencies and other corporations, they'll tell you, yeah, you can work on this, but it's a side project, but there's no budget. Mm. And you have to do that in addition to the 50 hours a week that you're working. Right. And Paramount really prioritizes this work. Well, just the way you told the stories in the In America series, you know, it wasn't just a PowerPoint presentation. There's literally a, a magazine, you know, an online magazine. Um, and, you know, specifically, I was moved by a presentation I saw you give in which you talked about an insight in the In America series that dealt with LGBTQ plus issues. Um, and, I, you know, I would, I would love you to tell our audience that staggering stat that, you know, I'm, uh, that drove me to tears. But it, Yeah, so, yeah, thank you for that. I think, um, so what we try to do in addition to unpacking their lived experiences and seeing them as people, we, I also know, my audience is marketers, right? So we need to build a business case, right? Because there, what's the financial benefit of connecting? Even though I'm like, as a person, you should want to understand these communities um, as a marketer, because ultimately these, whether they're your target now, they will be. Um, and there's also intersectional identities as well. So even if LGBTQ plus is not your um, target now, there's LGBTQ plus in general population. There's LGBTQ plus in Latin, Asian, Black, right? So we have to build a business case. So what we wanted to do is dimensionalize the target beyond just a percentage of the population. Right. So specifically for the LGBTQ plus population, we're currently at 7% and it's going to grow in by 2026, 15% on the low side. That's a conservative estimate all the way to 20%. Now, when we look at the 2026 numbers, they're comparable to the Latinx audience today, right? And no one will argue that Latinos should never be prioritized. But I really wanted to drive home the fact, especially with what is happening in the world, that connecting to the LGBTQ plus community is not just that 7% today. So we asked people in the survey, and I didn't want to, I want to be very intentional with the language. Is there someone that you care about? that is from the LGBTQ plus community. And we found that 70% of non-LGBTQ plus people have someone that they care about in their lives. It's not someone they know, it's someone that they care about. So there's an emotional connection. Right. There's an affinity for this person. Um, and it really drives it home that, you know what? That 7% is now 70 plus percent and probably higher. And that survey is nationally representative. So I found that very surprising. I didn't think it was gonna be that high considering everything that we're seeing with our government, unfortunately, the media, the drag bans, the legislation, trans children being threatened. I kind of went in there thinking like, oh, the country's getting more homophobic. But we saw, and it's consistent with that data point, but if we look at acceptance rates of the community, marriage equality, it's actually increasing. And what we're seeing is, unfortunately, there's a loud, hateful group in this country but they are the minority and I really want to drive that home. So yes, it's important to know that. And I'm glad that we have that data to really prove that because oftentimes, especially in the brand space, that fear of backlash paralyzes them from being on the right side of history and not just for this community, for all communities. Right. But we don't let racists dictate our brands. 
So we should not let homophobes dictate our brands. Mm. It was it, it was an incredibly powerful um, statistic evidence of yeah. what we feel. Yeah, I was going to say it's it, it's it's great to hear that evidence because there is a you know, I've, you know I'm not in America, I'm in the UK, but I have that same feeling that there is the the hatred that queer people feel is not real. It's it's a very vocal and some and very, can be dangerous minority, obviously. But the reality, mm -hmm. I believe, of this country is that it is a progressive country that welcomes and wants people like me contributing in it. Um, that's the story I believe, and that's the story I think um, I hear reflected. So it's great to hear that those statistics, even though it's not in the UK. Yeah, I just want to say... I, the language, because I think word, wording and language choice is really important. And you said it's not real. It is real. It's not the majority Sorry, perspective of yeah. the country. Yeah, yeah, because Good it call. is real. Even though I feel very safe in New mm. York, just imagining these families, parents potentially going into jail for supporting their trans children or trans children feeling less than, that hurts yeah. me. You know, and that should hurt everyone, whether you're a parent of a trans child or just a parent of a child in general or as a human. Right. Um, so that feeling is real. And even when we're in these coastal elite cities, it's still damaging to even us, you know. Um, but again, it is for the majority of the country that is they don't believe in that. Yeah. But I wish I wish I saw more galvanizing i wish i saw more voices i wish i saw more people standing up especially when we have celebrities that have had drag queens in their music videos yeah. like speak up for the drag bands you know you have such a huge platform and we need to kind of like alleviate and reduce that noise that is happening do you think that um it's different i mean I know we talked about different lived experiences within these communities the lgbtq plus community is a broad community and so my experience as a queer white man is very different from a trans woman from a, a black mm -hmm. gay man um do, does your uh, study measure that stuff or I, I don't know what i'm asking whether it's the, the comp is it complicated to put us all together in that way yeah Really early in the beginning, we address that. Um, we talk about how we're not a monolith um, when it looks at, you know, even generations. Yeah. So let's pull out race and the letter, the gender identity, sexual orientation, even generations. Right. It's hugely yeah. different. We understand there's a difference between Gen Z and millennials and boomers and Gen Xers, right? So all of those differences exist in the community, yeah. but it's even more nuanced, right? So if you grew up, you know, if you're a Gen Xer or a boomer, even an older millennials, AIDS was a death sentence. Marriage equality was never an option. And we know that's not the case anymore. So the differences between the Gen Z LGBTQ plus experience versus an older millennial is vastly different than a non-LGBTQ plus Gen Zer and an older millennial. But I love what you said because even within the letters, right, the Gs, there's a huge difference mm. in experience that is based on race, ethnicity, body type, where do you live, um, 
how open your family is to your and accepting is to your identity, how visible your identity is to the outside world. And your age. I mean, there's so many things. And, and your, your age. age. Yes. I mean, forget mm -hmm. forget even millennials. I mean, if we talk about um, the community in terms of like 55 plus, 60 plus, mm -hmm. that world you lived in as a younger person, I mean, it... it you, you, yeah, it, it, that, absolutely. And that, that lived experience is totally different. Totally different and oftentimes invisible, yeah. right? Within the LGBTQ plus community, because unfortunately that generation there has been wiped out from AIDS. So we didn't see people like us that were older. So we didn't, we don't have any models to represent or we didn't think we would make it so if you think you're gonna die eventually in your 40s or you're gonna die because because of your identity how do you plan for the future hmm. yeah how can you dream up a future yeah. yeah and that's so we just talked about the diversity that it exists within each of the letters so that that diversity exists in the g's the l's the b's and even significantly more with the team right and so imagine now we're adding all those different differences within the letters and then you're putting the letters together so what we found in our research too is that it's very split if there is even an lgbtq plus community it's evenly split i think it's like 45 and 55 percent um yeah and what really binds us together unfortunately is the history our tragic history mm. are the threats to the community yeah that's what um, that's what ultimately unifies us absolutely which in a way is is true of other marginalized communities as well you know uh, maybe not to the extent but yeah yeah i think you know i'm uh, i've done work with other marginalized communities but i'm going to speak for the latinx community i think there is some things that more than lgbt plus community that connect the Latino community, um, but yes, there we also are different races, you know, um, different religions, different incomes, different different cities, different regions, different countries of origin. Absolutely. So, I mean, the role, your role in all this is as a sort of anthropologist or as, a, as an anthropologist. We think of that as the observer of stories, but you're also an activist. You're you're an advocate of bringing these stories to life. So. Do you see a difference when you communicate these stories in the context of a culture versus the context of, you know, as you said, marketing, branding, et cetera? And, and does it, is it easier to, easier to change minds or sorry? I'm just. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I, I've never thought of myself as an activist or even an advocate. Um, I think the word activist um, has a very specific connotation and it has become very politicized unfortunately, like woke and CRT. Um, so I see myself more as an advocate because I'm providing a voice for communities in these spaces that oftentimes they aren't in, unfortunately. They're, I'm lucky at Paramount, it's very diverse, but there's been so many instances prior to Paramount where I was the only person of color. Mm. And that is really sad. Um, so I want to increase the representation, but in a responsible way, because representation for the sake of representation is has a negative impact on the community. So by advocate, advocating for marginalized communities, 
my hope is that I'm doing my part to be a catalyst for that activism, which is that broader social political change. Um, because I have the I have the ears of people that are creating content, that are creating advertising, and I want them to be responsible. But first, I want them I want to hit them on a personal level, because I believe if you change as a person, that ultimately is going to change who you are as a marketer, as a professional. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, um, Angel, we 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 so admire the the work that you're doing, and you know the the thought that you bring to this activity as a cultural to bring. I I love the title. It's cultural intelligence. I mean that mm-hmm. that's you know if the more we make people intelligent, hopefully the the better the society will be. But um, we could talk for a very long time, but respectful of your time. Um, we'll just thank you and we'll say we love to close out our story conversations asking our guests if they would share your, their, your, would you share your favorite story, you know? Um, and sky's the limit, whatever Whatever you, yeah. it could be funny, it could be a, an, an anecdote, you're, something that even startled you. What What's your favorite story? So I'm not going to say a specific story, but I think what I'm really loving is all the Eat the Rich narratives and stories that are resonating with people and showing how horribly miserable and detached from reality the super wealthy are because to me, it's kind of changing the aspirations, right, of people to not, you shouldn't aspire to be a billionaire, but to be a happy and, a, and be a good person. And I feel like that's definitely resonating with millennials and Gen Z. It's not about financial wealth. It's about financial independence. It's not about being the next Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg. It's about being AOC, who can easily be a multimillionaire. She took corporate dollars, right? Or influencers like Mr. Beast, who builds fortune by giving a lot of it away. So I want to live in that world where we don't aspire to become billionaires and ultimately keep the 99% down. I want people to choose happiness and have a positive impact over extreme wealth. So I'm really loving all the eat the rich narratives and I hope <laughs> it continues for a few a few more years. That's that's the world I want yeah, to live in. That's a great story. <laughs> that is a great story. Yeah. And ultimately, I think it has a trickle-down effect, right, for these marginalized communities. Because if we are not forsaking other people to have exorbitant wealth, then we kind of we're kind of all in this together, mm-hmm. right? Which hopefully builds empathy not just for marginalized communities, but everyone and everyone's experience. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, it's been a really fascinating conversation. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was fun. Another good one. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, uh, it, it, especially um, meaningful to us. Yeah, yeah. Ab- absolutely. So let's let's see what we can unpack for our our listeners. I, I guess for me, one of the most important things is this idea of of you can't target a group your audience is not this one thing (laughs) we try we're so desperate to categorize people um they're made up of people humans 
Yeah, um, like like David Coggan always mm. tells us and told us in our story conversation in season one, humans, not consumers. Yeah, um, and I think it's you know it's it's interesting how um, technology is going to be able to segment some of these groups more effectively now, perhaps. But I guess one of the things we need to watch out for is who's defining how those groups are segmented. Right. Um, right. They don't. They don't. The groups are not made up of people who mon- who monolithically behave the, the yeah. same way. They they're diverse. And one of the things that Angel said, which was I found fascinating, was that um, groups are are diverse and often in marginal marginalized communities they're even more diverse than in gen pop Mm. and that one stat that you know when we think about communicating with an audience when he talked about the stat of seven percent of of people in the u.s identify as lgbtq but 70 percent of the population Mm. indicated that someone they care about yeah so the messaging, the messaging has to be crafted with the understanding of not just a, a perceived target, but a broader group who is conceptually part of the, the lived experience of yes, that target. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, for, for me, another takeaway that was really interesting was differentiating between the idea of trend forecasting or trend spotting and really understanding, really applying cultural intelligence to looking at the future and, mm. you know, um, and understanding how the future is going to impact groups that we want to engage with. So I loved the fact that Angel talked about anthropology being able to, to give you that lens where you can understand the disruptors, yeah. right? the difference between trend spotting being, oh, everybody is doing it, so it must be a trend, yeah. versus, oh, a few people are doing something that is going to change everything. Yeah. And then investigating that, um, interrogating that observation and, and figuring it out with data. But it's that spotting of, oh, this is going to change everything that, that really takes intuition, mm. which um, I think it, it is a special kind of person that can differentiate between everybody's doing it and oh a few people are doing it and and that's going to catch on yeah it's one of those areas that we need to be reskilled you know i talked about the seligman um prospecting we have to learn to be able to be aware of things and learn to make those connections um to update our skills to see the potential in other things and i guess that brings me on to my next point which is you know like all these things none of it's easy um we like to think of of things like um intuition prospecting all these things as a, as 
as magic and these, these yeah. connections are magic well magic takes work <laughs> let's just well, say yeah yeah that was that that was just so clear yeah. you know whether it's his rituals mm. or his admonition read a lot make time every day to listen and explore and and make sure you're exploring based on your passions you can be passionate about something but in order to become proficient at a passion you gotta you gotta practice you gotta do you the do. work you gotta do the work absolutely um and let the data take you where it takes you as opposed to assume where the data is going to take you. Mm. <laughs> yes. Don't, don't, don't we hear that? Or don't we say that a lot? Yeah. Um, the, 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 the last point that I think we both resonated with was this, that idea that words matter. Mm. And, I mean, stories Stories may be visual, but in great measure, stories are are made up of words. Yeah, and I think it's words. really, I think it's really interesting that even people who consider themselves, you know, well versed, well practiced in the use of words and stories can still use the wrong words. I I use the wrong words in on this call when I was you know I just carelessly said something that I wasn't my intention to say, um, you know about the the lived experience of a particular group versus what I, you know, what, what, what I meant was that I believe the perception is more favorable than, um, the, than that small reality, but it's still a reality. But I think that point about the words we choose really, really matter because other people will, you know, it comes back to that stuff that we always talk about. The fact that if, if a story isn't told, someone's telling a story because your brain will make the connection and it will often make the wrong connection. So if you're not using the right specific words that will lead your audience to where you need them to be to understand your point they will interpret them those They'll words differently the and or they the will apply their own sense of meaning mm. um and and it's how hum- it's humbling you know mm. particularly in a world in which we are surrendering the choice of words in some corners of the communication universe <laughs> to tools like chat gpt don't say um, that word <laughs> i know i know i know no but it is an interesting one that, it sh- that, who shall not be named it, um, sh- <laughs> but it is an interesting one you, you know what is going to happen to language i guess it comes back to the conversation we had with roy um a couple of weeks ago it, you know will la- i know a language does evolve but is it going to become so beige <laughs> <laughs> well, not even beige, but you know, we we see the tool as you know creating the content faster than we can. Mm. But then we need to go back and ch- check to see if it has chosen the right words. Yeah, absolutely. you know, it's it's it. it <laughs> I don't know why this just sprung into my head, but generative AI is not an easy bake oven. (laughs) As a child, you didn't have an easy bake oven, I suspect. (laughs) But there's nothing easy about baking, and that Mm. was really a a, a poor idea to plant in young minds back then. (laughs) And there's nothing Um, easy about language, let's be honest. That's correct. Yeah. That is correct. 
So great. Well, you know, another one for the books. It was a really interesting conversation. So uh, please do join us for our. We've got a few more to come in this series. Um, really exciting and interesting guests to follow. Um, as usual, you can find myself, Susan, and our various endeavors on our websites which are all in the in the show notes uh, for iambic creative and griffin and skates collaborative give us a call we'd love to talk to you about your specific language needs <laughs> branding be yeah. it visual textual or sonic yeah why not absolutely until next time mm-hmm.